Welcome to a special bonus edition of the Classic Horrors Club podcast, a previously unscheduled meeting that I am going to call to order right now, and we are going to talk about Planet of the Apes. Yes, this would be episode 16.5 if you have to put a number on it. I like that. You took a trip recently. You headed out west, young man, to the land of apes and bats, and you had a fantastic trip. And we had to do an episode on it. You came back with some great sound bites that we're going to be incorporating into the episode and twist our arms to talk about Batman or Planet of the Apes, both uh, childhood memories uh, for both of us. And so uh, we're just going to kind of share some of our personal childhood memories on both and and, uh, you specifically talking about your trip and uh, sharing with us uh, some great audio clips that you got uh, from your trip. Yeah, and I guess we should explain why we're doing this now. Uh, we know it's the 50th anniversary year of the original Planet of the Apes in 1968, but the general wide release date was April 3rd, 1968. So this episode is going out on probably April 2nd, April 3rd, the actual 50th anniversary, which I think is pretty awesome. I didn't want to miss that little bit of synergy. Well, we have to acknowledge right up front, this is not only a special episode, but this is uh, some transitions that we're going through in regards to the podcast. We had previously been on the uh, Downright Creepies Phantom Podcast Network. Uh, It's going through some changes, and we took that opportunity to kind of break away and do our own thing. We've been wanting to be on our own feed so that you can subscribe to our show and just our show. Not that we didn't want to support the other shows, but we respect the fact that a lot of listeners want to be able to more directly pick and choose the shows that they have in their feed, especially through iTunes and such. So uh, it was just a good time for us to kind of do our own things. So as we speak, this episode will be our first episode uploaded to SoundCloud separate from the network. We are working on getting these episodes on iTunes, so you're going to have to bear with us during this transition. This has all come a little quickly for us, so we will eventually be on iTunes, uh, hopefully sooner than later. Past episodes, to the best of our knowledge, will remain available on the old network, Uh, and I know the way iTunes works is that even though that network may cease to exist, those episodes should should stay on iTunes, at least for the foreseeable future. 
We hope to get the old episodes uploaded to our new feed. Uh, we'll keep you updated on that through our various um, Facebook pages and our blogs and whatnot. This new feed will give all the information of how to uh, subscribe and kind of keep track of us. I'll have it the episode up on my uh, homepage of kccinephile.com. But uh, we're flying solo now and still doing the same thing. No difference behind the scenes, or no difference, I guess, in front of the scenes. It's all behind the scenes changes that I think ultimately will be a step in the, in the right direction for us. Yep, and we say this sort of as a disclaimer. My ideal optimistic mind would say it's seamless and you don't notice any difference. Right now, though, the facts are we, we have our own SoundCloud account. We are successfully linked to Stitcher. And we are in the approval period for iTunes. The RSS feed has been verified. It works. iTunes, though, uh, says to allow 24 to 48 hours for approval. I don't anticipate any problem. It went through that verification and was approved as far as that goes. I'm just waiting for that email that says it's ready to go. So, yep, exciting. But business as usual as far as this goes. Absolutely. Let's talk about bats and apes. Yes. So, well, first, though... Since this is going to be Planet of the Apes-centric, what's your history with Planet of the Apes? Well, you know, I was born in 67, so I missed the original films, uh, being able to see them in a the movie theater. I have very vivid memories of the Go Ape, you know, movie marathons from, I guess, what, 1974, that time frame, living in a town just north of Wichita, didn't have direct access to a movie theater that played that. I saw the advertisement for it playing in Wichita, begged and pleaded my parents to take me in, to which they said, that's not going to happen. So for me, it was watching them on television. You know, I didn't see any of the original films in the theater until you and I witnessed Planet of the Apes back in, I guess, what, 2016 now? When that had kind of a, I guess it wasn't an anniversary run, but had a run in the theaters. We saw it at the Alamo Draft House. I would see... Planet of the Apes, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, and Battle for the Planet of the Apes, I would see those through local ABC affiliate in Wichita that would play them as part of their like Friday and Saturday night movies. And actually, they would mostly play the first three films. Never did the fourth film, Conquest, because it was, I guess, considered too violent, which I found was actually a thing that a lot of stations opted not to play it. Battle would often get relegated to like a Saturday afternoon matinee because obviously it's it's a different quality. It's not as good as the first three. But I would, for many years, would stay up late and watch those first three films as they would pop up in rotation, watch them with my mom and dad, mostly my dad. Mom would tolerate those films, but dad loved them. I was also a big fan of the Power Records in the 1970s, which again skipped Conquest. I had all four of the original uh, book and records. I had the long-playing vinyl 33 and a third record. I had the the other one that included characters from the TV series. I remember watching the TV series when it came on CBS on Friday nights. I remember watching Return to the Planet of the Apes on Saturday morning television, the kind of poorly animated Saturday morning uh, cartoon, but uh, which was vastly different from the movies, but I loved it. I would, you know, get a couple of the Marvel comics. I always wanted the the Mego figures, and the only one I got was the astronaut, <laughs> the one that nobody wanted. That's the one I got. 
I had like the Planet of the Apes board game. I had a Planet of the Apes playset that I can't remember the name of it, but uh, it had these like green plastic trees that kind of sat on like a little X frame, and and there was uh, a little plastic characters and and uh, yeah. So I was I was a huge Apes fan, and when the movies came out on VHS, I remember discovering Conquest for the first time, probably circa 1989-ish, maybe a year or two before that, blown away by that movie, having never seen it, never even, I was, I don't even think I was really that much aware of it, because it always seemed to get overlooked, uh, and I've been a big fan ever since, you know, I, I purchased them on DVD, I've got the big 40-year Evolution Blu-ray set, which I guess is, what, 10 years old now? Uh, that's an amazing box set, I, which I don't think has been surpassed. I haven't seen anything coming out in the 50 year that, that is going to equal that set in my mind. You know, I've got, as I'm sitting here in my room, I've got a Go 8 poster framed. I've got three action figures. I've got a couple of glasses. So, yeah, big Apes fan ever since I was a kid and, and uh, envied you greatly uh, as you headed out west to, to see this exhibit and, and, and you know, the interviews and such. So a uh, huge fan and, and uh, would have loved to have gone to that. I don't remember as a child being aware at all of the marathon, the Go Apes marathon. That would have been, what, I think, was it 1974? Because Battle was 73. Yeah, it would have been 74-ish. Yeah, I think it was in conjunction with the TV series, roughly. So, And i got to be careful when I start talking about this. I'm likely to reveal a lot more about my childhood than I probably want to. My first memory was Escape. I saw that in the theaters. Um, we had been to the drive-in, and they showed a trailer for Escape from the Planet of the Apes. My mother said, I don't know how they can have another one based on how the one before ended. I don't remember if she told me how it ended so that I understood what she meant, or if I said I don't want to know, or what. But I had to go see Escape from the Planet of the Apes. I hounded my parents about it. They were sick of me hounding them. They took me, dropped me off. I sat in the theater and watched it by myself uh, in Enid, Oklahoma, the Esquire Theater. So that that was my introduction. I remember watching the original for the first time, I think on CBS. I don't know if it was in primetime or if it was a late night movie. I remember the commercials for that. Those commercials for those CBS movies were repeated so many times and it was the same clips i have vivid I, memories of beneath the planet of the apes so they're pounding down the door yeah and same thing like with abominable dr fives where he spins the telescope that yeah. those commercials are just forever etched into my mind so I, i'm not sure when i saw planet and beneath but from that moment on of seeing escape i was uh I love Planet of the Apes. I have all the Marvel magazines. I don't have the comic books. This is a weird deal. It must have been a, a phase where I didn't have expendable income as if I do now. But because the comics were stories that were in the magazines and I had the magazines, I didn't collect the comics. But somehow I missed issue four of the magazine, so I have that comic. I think I have since collected number four of the magazine. I've got the full run. I don't have... The comics, the original run of comics, I think it was Adventures on the Planet of the Apes. But I have every comic since then, and there have been, it's a license that's been renewed. Dark Horse has had it for a while, boom. Uh, right now they're doing wonderful 
sort of mashups, King Kong on the Planet of the Apes, Green Lantern, Planet of the Apes. Yeah, I those, purchased all the reasons. Those, those are a lot of fun. Great work, great work in them. Yeah, but back in the day when the TV series, the cartoon series, that was the prime of my apes fandom. I did have the Mego figures. I had the, the treehouse. I say had. I may still have, and I need to look, some of the figures. I don't have the treehouse. I wish I did. This was a time there was a lot of merchandising for the TV series, so I had a lot of that, have some of that still. Uh, trading cards, the set, books, anything that have come over the years. I'm a huge Apes fan. The part I'm missing was any merchandising from the original run, because it had its own trading card series. It had uh, little cups and plates, and there were was some limited merchandising, and I've been able to collect some of that you know, since, but none of that would have been from the first run because I was five years old when Planet of the Apes came out. I just love it. And so this opportunity, and this wasn't actually why I went to California recently. I went to see the Batman 66 exhibit. I kind of waffled on going, but when I saw they were having this 50th anniversary screening of Planet of the Apes at USC, I took that as a sign that I could kill two birds with one stone. Uh, so I went out there that's what I'm going to be telling you about and stop me and ask questions along the way. Oh, oh, one other thing about Planet of the Apes, and this is the embarrassing thing. We used to play horses when we were kids. We were horses and we would go prancing with our hands up and, you know, galloping across. My, <laughs> yes, no coconuts. And my horse name was always Caesar. I was always Caesar, and that was from Planet of the Apes. Okay, that's kind of and it was a Palomino, if that matters. That, but... <laughs> that's kind of funny. That's, that's an interesting little tidbit. Yes. So, um... <laughs> so I was all ready. Friday night was this 50th anniversary screening. My brother flew down from San Francisco to go with me. Had primarily, like I said, wanted to go to the Batman 66 exhibit at the Hollywood Museum. So went to that, was looking around, and coincidentally, as fate would have it, this Hollywood Museum, it's four levels of wonderful memorabilia and props and costumes, lots of costumes from old classic movies, but they had a section on Planet of the Apes that I was totally unaware of until I walked in there. First, I, I kind of turned this corner for your interest. It was by a little Star Trek display, and there was the spaceship pod from the 2001 Planet of the Apes. And I thought, oh, wow, they have some props from Planet of the Apes. And they had a couple costumes. It was a 2001 Planet of the Apes movie. <laughs> I, <laughs> yes, I don't mind that movie. Nice. Tim Burton's, it's okay. But as I went a little further, they had not only a tall display case with Planet of the Apes, they also had a waist-high, uh, long display case that had some Planet of the Apes. The Waste High one had a lot from Beneath. They had a lot of the masks of the mutants and then pictures of applying the makeup. The, the masks, they had the human mask that they pulled off uh, to reveal the mutant skin, and then they also had masks of the mutant skin itself. Those were always really, really scary to me. The, the, yeah, I remember the artwork from the... Power Records. Did you, did you get any of those Power Records back in the day? I had them, didn't still have them, and I have co recollected all but one of them. Do you remember the artwork from Beneath the Planet of the Apes? No. All right. I'm going to pull that up. That 
truly horrific visualization of the mutants. Nothing like the movie. I mean, it takes it to a Walking Dead-like level. Wow. So. so the tall display case, it had the costume from Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, the, the uniform that Caesar wore with the chains uh, on an ape mannequin. That was really cool. They had some more masks from beneath. They had a couple movie posters and lobby cards uh, on the wall behind. They had some costumes. I don't actually know which movies these were from, but some were robes. That was probably from The Mutant. And then there was an armor from a gorilla and then another costume. And then maybe perhaps the icing on the cake, if that's what you really like, was they had Charlton Heston's astronaut uniform from Planet of the Apes in its own tall display case. That was just really cool. It was a surprise. I didn't expect to see it, and yet totally appropriate uh, that we ran into that. Now, on the USC campus, they had their own display exhibit of Planet of the Apes. A lot of that was from, yes, the 2001 movie. To me, that part of it was a little less exciting than the displays that they had at the Hollywood Museum. But my brother and I got there to watch the screening. Of course, I wanted to go early to make sure we got a good seat. We stood in line maybe for about 30 minutes. It was a, a full house. In fact, it started late because they were trying to get everyone seated. And some of the guests of honor were late or did not end up coming. So they had to figure out and they were trying to find seats for people, although there ended up being people standing on the sides. But we got in, no problem, got good seats uh, for the screening. And uh, it was a screening of Planet of the Apes. It was, like you said, we saw it at the Alamo and that was great. It's also a different experience to see it with an audience that, you know, is there for that. They're fans of it. They know the Easter eggs. They know the in-jokes. It's just, it's a different experience. It wasn't a movie theater proper. It was an auditorium on the USC campus, although it did have a good sound system and a a full-size, well, I don't know if it was full-size, but a a movie screen. So it, it was similar, very similar to a theater experience. It wasn't folding chairs in a hotel Uh, meeting room okay so the movie great probably don't need to talk about that but afterwards they had a panel called it legacy of the planet of the apes it was led by the director of programming for whatever department he's in at at usc um, a man named alessandro ago guests for the panel afterwards uh, were two people involved with the original planet of the apes william kreber bill kreber he was the art director on Planet Beneath and Escape, and then Dan Strepek. He was one of the makeup artists. Of course, John Chambers is, I think, mostly credited, but Dan Strepek was right there with him. Uh, He worked on all the movies. He was supervisor of makeup in a couple of them, and then he worked on the Planet of the Apes TV series. I know him also from the movie with Dirk Benedict. He turned Dirk Benedict into a snake. I would have loved the entire panel with them, but they balanced it out with people from the new Planet of the Apes series, Dawn, War, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. So they had Rick Jaffa, who was one of the writers. He and his writing partner actually launched the new trilogy with Rise of the Planet of the Apes. And I'm not playing it because it's about the new series, but he did talk about the genesis of Rise of the Planet of the Apes, how that came about. It wasn't originally intended to be a new 
series of Planet of the Apes, but as it developed, they figured, oh, this would be, you know, perfect. So he was there, a, a gentleman named Joe Letary. He was the senior, vi senior visual effects supervisor for the new trilogy. To me, came across as like a broker putting the deal together, maybe between the writers and 20th Century Fox and then the special effects companies. I don't know if that's true or not. Matt Reeves was there. He was the director of Dawn and War. My brother was thrilled because he was a big part of the television series Felicity, which my <laughs> brother loves. So he was dying to ask him a question about Felicity. Uh, he was there and Rupert Wyatt, who directed Rise of the Planet of the Apes, the first one. A lot of the questions skewed towards the new movies. And of course, when audience members were coming up to ask questions, they asked mostly of the new people. But I did record the whole thing. I pulled some clips. I'll kind of just tell you what we're going to hear and then and play them. The first question, which is totally understandable if you're at an event like this, is about the makeup, the original makeup for Planet of the Apes. And Dan Streepeck answered the first question. Thank you all very much for coming here tonight to celebrate this 50th anniversary. I thought, you know, maybe we could start uh, back when Arthur Jacobs first discovered Pierre Boulle's novel, Planet of the Apes. Uh, one of the biggest hurdles that, uh, that he faced as producer trying to get the film grid uh, was that it was uh, a tough sell that the, uh, that the apes would be believable and that they wouldn't be laughed off the screen. And uh, one of the things that really convinced the studio and Richard Zanuck to move forward was a, uh, a makeup test. And so I thought we could start a little bit with uh, the work on designing the apes and, uh, and Dan, the work that, uh, that, that you and John Chambers did to create apes that people would take seriously. Well, uh, John, John was you know, contacted in Spain. Uh, he was doing a picture in Spain. He was contacted to come to Fox and see if he could give a tryout. If there had been some tests made prior to that. If you, can you hold the mic a little bit higher? There had been some tests done prior to that, and they were very unsuccessful. Uh, I, at that time, I was doing Mission Impossible with Barbara Land, uh, Barbara and, and Martin Landau. Anyway, um, Ben Nye, who was head of the makeup department, uh, they had done some tests with Edward G. Robinson, and they were very unsuccessful. And so, uh, uh, John Chambers got a call in Spain from Ben Nye and to, to, to come and see if they could solve the problem. So uh, John finished his assignment there and uh, came, to, came back here to Hollywood. Meanwhile, I had just finished uh, uh, the season of Mission Impossible and I received a phone call from Ben Nye uh, saying he'd like to submit my name to take over the makeup department head because he was retiring. And of course, John and I go back a long way. We, we started at NBC, a Easy Lee show. <laughs> but anyway, so uh, this amount came together. And uh, uh, Bill Kreber can fill in a lot of stuff too here. But uh, 
So uh, we started uh, you know, experimenting with what the look was going to be like. And it was, uh, it was just damn difficult to come up with a reasonable look that was not uh, comedic or laughable. And, uh, and of course, I think uh, Franklin Chapter was so brilliant in his casting. That was big, big plus in the equation. And because uh, originally they were going to use Edward G. Robinson, and of course he couldn't stand it covered up at all. And and, uh, and uh, got, you know like Maurice Evans and Kim and Roddy and at all. It was just a wonderment. The next thing that might be natural to talk about are the sets. The sets are very unique. That was uh, the next question that was asked was about the sets and. Where did he get the, the vision for that? I want to also talk a little bit about the design of the Ape City because one of the big challenges uh, of adapting Pierre's novel is that the apes are living in a perfectly modern, technologically advanced society and the screenplay uh, reflected a different vision um, and things that needed to somehow seem organic to how an ape culture would uh, exist on our planet. So, Bill, tell us about the, uh, the, the original discussions that you had with Arthur, with Franklin, about uh, what Ape City was going to look like in this version. Well, um, yes, I had a meeting with Arthur and Franklin, and, and I had read the Bull book, and so uh, they asked me what I thought we should do, and, and uh, I said, well, uh, I think you need to go someplace that, that doesn't, that won't give it away. And I said, well, I was thinking that we could, according to the book, we could uh, um, <clears throat> go maybe to Brasilia and and do it like Pierre Bowles said, and which was monkey bars for. Uh, crosswalks, and but it was a modern city, but it, you know, was pretty involved. But I thought there would be basics, and I said, "I'm not giving you a trip to Brasilia." He <laughs> says, "You're gonna do it, and I don't want anybody to know it's Earth." I said, "Well, Arthur, it's Earth. I mean." <laughs> And he says, well, you're going to find places that nobody's ever seen. And uh, so I, after that meeting, I had, I had a meeting with my the head of the art department, Jack Martin Smith. And I said, told him what the problem was. And he said, well, you of anybody know where to make this picture. He said, didn't you make the greatest story up in, in Lake Powell? Nobody's been up there yet, you know, and we were. It was the early 60s, and uh, only a few really ex adventurous people would have went up. And I, so we use that as sort of a visual um, place beginning. I think you'll notice that the, some of the rocks begin to look like the buildings that we built. So <clears throat> we 
we solved that problem, and you know, Frank Blatter, all those places you saw were walked through, and uh, the, the hilltop was done where, from a helicopter flight that I made with Frank and Schaffner, and uh, we put down up on the rim, and and he says, well, I'll, I'll figure some place to do, you know, we're, we're going to make this shot, and I said, okay, give me a minute, so I put, a, a film wrapper, you know, we use film now. And, <laughs> and, uh, and I wrapped, I wrote on it, uh, Frank and Schaffner and Bill Krieger were here and I dated it and I put it in the film camp and I built a rock arm at that time and Frank says, come on, let's get out of here. So <clears throat> we continued our scouting. So the day we shot, um, uh, Frank told Heston to get in the helicopter. We're going on for the next shot. And Heston couldn't, he says, a helicopter? What are you going to do? How are you going to, how's this going to work? And Frank says, come on. So they flew up there. And Heston was still saying, nobody's been here. And Frank went, undo those rocks. <laughs> Yeah. Well, so he, Frank Heston did it, and he says, I'll be damned, you know, he says, he really, but what bothered me more is I didn't put it back. Yeah, we get, Anyway. The gist of this response came to how it was a collaboration among all the filmmakers. So even though Dan Strepek was makeup, he actually, as you'll hear, had a big part to do with the ending. So they all, to somewhat of an extent, collaborated on different things, even though it was outside their area of expertise. I got a call from Arthur Jacobs. He said, we're not getting anywhere with the makeup. It's going too slow. He says, see if you can go help them do something. You know, and I said... I'm not going to the makeup department. They don't want me around. They, you know, it was private to go in there. It was. You, you didn't go there, even, even, you know, in my position. So I said, okay. So I went down and met Dan and and John, and uh, we, uh, <clears throat> you know, I said if I was Dick Zanuck. I would ask uh, if I'd ever looked at an ape. And they said, well, we got walls of photographs they made at the zoo, and they had research, and they had, but a real ape, I said, well, how are you gonna do that? And I said, well, I talked to Arthur. So I went over and said, well, uh, you know, they're moving in, in a direction, but they could see you seeing an ape. And uh, Arthur says, so get him an ape. <laughs> and uh, the rest of it, uh, I had an ape over there the next day, and they almost took this bird. was uh, Debbie from, I think, Lost in Space. <laughs> one of those, the, the prop man knew, you know, prop, had a prop, property department. So we had... Uh, they took hair samples and color samples and, and texture samples and uh, I 
don't think it was a week later they were they were starting to really go. So, you know, the, the making a motion picture, I gotta make this statement, is a collaboration. A collaboration of some hundreds of people that have different jobs and different levels and, and uh, different inputs. Uh, we just, you know, when you think of something that might work or make something work better, it doesn't matter who says it. It, it's, it can be, you know, anyone on, on, the, on the unit that, that, uh, you, uh, that comes forward and you hope that everyone is receptive of suggestions and if they work better than the script, the director will do it. And Franklin Tavner was one of those people. I had a lot of opportunities to, to the, in fact, the beginning of the picture um, was written where, you know, you see the spaceship actually crash. And I told Frank, I said, I don't want another borderline miniature going into Lake Powell. I said, what if we did a subjective camera and just fly the audience into the, let them ride the spaceship. And he says, that's what we'll do. That's, that's what we're going to, we'll just do it. But there was that kind of collaboration. The, the other thing I, I'm most proud of is that uh, Frank and I were having a drink at a bar in Lake Powell, in Huawei Lodge. And we, he said, the end of the, the picture is too abrupt. And he says, can you think of something that'll extend it? And I said, I grabbed a, a bar napkin and I sketched a little storyboard of his approach, the views of the cliff and the, over the back of the Statue of Liberty. And he, he says, fine, we'll do it. I said, well, I don't have a budget for this, these shots. He says, don't worry about it. That's what we're going to do. And that, so um, I misplaced the napkin. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> I did include one clip of Matt Reeves because like Richard and I just did, he was asked, what is your experience with Planet of the Apes? Were you a fan as a child? Did you know about it? Blah, blah, blah. And I think it was interesting to hear what Matt Reeves from the modern trilogy had to say because he is one of us. I don't know if he's a monster kid, but he's an ape kid, I would say. And here's his response to that question. I want to hear a little bit about what this film meant to all of you uh, who, uh, so when you saw it for the first time, I know, uh, Matt, you had the Super 8 film clips from Beneath. So please, let us know a little bit about what this, this film meant to you when you first saw it. Well, I... Um... I think I, I was introduced to the whole series from the television show. Um, and I was obsessed with it. Like, the way that everybody's into Star Wars now, which I was into Star Wars later, but this was my Star Wars for me before Star Wars. And um, I watched, I did have, I, I, I had got an eight millimeter camera when I was, um, literally a wind up eight millimeter camera, not even Super 8, when I was eight years old. And I had this projector and we got some Super 8 footage 
um, which you could buy then. You couldn't get, so here, imagine a time when you couldn't like watch something on your phone, or you couldn't watch a movie, you couldn't stream. It didn't exist. You couldn't, you had to see, you could see a movie on TV or you could see it in the theater. Um, and, or you could get these little excerpts that were on Super 8. So it's actually in the um, exhibit, but there was this uh, thing that I had that I watched until all the sprockets broke, which was from beneath the Planet of the Apes, which I thought was the scariest, coolest movie ever. Like, I don't know if you guys seen it, but like, when the mutants, this is crazy, when the mutants take off their faces and they're praying to the, the nuclear weapon and they say, I, I reveal my inmost self to my God and they look like the scariest thing you've ever seen. I was like, this is really not good. But I was really scared. And so I loved I used to dress as an ape. I mean, I would. I had a mask, and I would. We, that's we. We made, so then when I was when I was eleven, we made a mashup, which was a cross between Planet of the Apes because they had these ape masks, um, and uh, Star Wars. It was called the, the movie was called Galactic Battles, and um, it was me and my friends, and, and we were just obsessed with Planet of the Apes. That's what I would do. I was just. I loved the thing, and I have to say that the makeup that you did. I have to say that as as a kid, if I could have had, or just looking at the exhibit, if I could have had those appliances, that was my dream. Like, I had a mask, but the mask didn't have the articulatable mouth, you know? And I just thought, God, I'm not quite, I'm not like Roddy McDowell. I mean, those movies meant everything to me, and I think your work is incredible. Your work is incredible. It's just, it's an honor to be up here with you. I just I love these movies. Here's another question, just more about behind the scenes, a little glimpse into something that we may not all know about uh, Planet of the Apes and the way that it was filmed. Dan, take us behind the scenes of all of the the uh, revolutionary makeup uh, at the time, the, uh, the 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 working process with Roddy McDowell and Kim Hunter and Maurice Evans. Uh, and Roddy McDowell was pretty claustrophobic. Maurice Evans seemed to really take to it. Give us, give us a sense of what that was like, um, what the process was like, and how each actor kind of uh, approached it. Well, yes, uh, you know, uh, of course, in my world of, of doing makeup as opposed to CGI, uh, we start off by covering the actor's face with, with uh, impression material, and it's rather restrictive and claustrophobic, and then transfer that to dental stone and and then to do your sculpture on that and then do the negative and then finally come up with a positive and of course the, the product is then glued to the actor's face. Uh, let me preface by saying I don't care how good a makeup is on, on a performer's face or body if they're not performing it doesn't work and this is where the genius of Franklin Schaffner came in because uh, Maurice Evans and, and the actors of that caliber and Kim Hunter and Roddy, uh, they could transcend or go through that makeup and bring it to life. And that's what made the whole thing work, I think, ultimately. And uh, I've done 54 years in the makeup business and I've seen my own work go down the drain because the actor just won't project through it, you know, or can't. And uh, and you sit there looking like, oh my God, we got a flat tire here, you know. <laughs> and then what do you do? But on Clown of the Apes, the casting was absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And I, I laid that at Mr. Shaffin's uh, feet, you know. 
Well, Roddy talks about uh, some of the things that he had to develop in order to make the expressions work. Uh, and part of it was uh, the discussion about there needing to be constant movement uh, because there wasn't, uh, because the, it would seem like he was wearing a mask if, if he didn't have sort of facial antics. So tell us a little bit about working with Roddy over the years, some of the things that maybe he helped to influence and you guys might have worked together on uh, to continue to allow his uh, emotional performance to, to come through. Well, I think one of, the, one of the things about that was to, to take the original design and then reduce and reduce and reduce, but maintain the integrity of, of the work. So that it gave more flexibility to the actor uh, as far as how he could work through that, that foam rubber and, and give a performance and have it, have it show. So uh, the appliances from the inception to when we actually went to filming were much smaller, but did the same job only better because the actor could transpose through, through, the, through the prosthesis. And plus, the, the other uh, part of that equation, of course, is to have fine actors, actors who can project and, you know, uh, Edward G. Robinson, for instance, was on the early part of the development of Planet of the Apes for the, for the makeups. And of course, he was claustrophobic, so he, he turned them off as fast as you're putting them on, you know? But even when you got it on, he just wouldn't project it. Nothing came through. But Edward G. Robinson was back there, but it wasn't, a, it wasn't an ape or a gorilla in front of him, you know? And then another question about the sets from Bill Krieber, and I believe this is where he may repeat a little bit of his story, but worth hearing twice. Let's talk a little bit about uh, this piece that we have here, Bill, from your collection, a miniature from, from Ape City. Um, give us a sense of how this, these, the miniatures worked uh, alongside the uh, map paintings and other things that were actually built on set. Uh, to, to create this this vision of a society, and tell us how you actually built the uh, the, the proper ape city homes in uh, Malibu Creek. As a, I'm trying to shorten it, but I have to make one remark: the production office at 20th Century Fox is in charge of making things as cheap as they can make them, <laughs> <laughs> and when they saw the makeup, they said. We don't have to buy actors. We can get some men to do this picture. That was their whole idea. And Frank said, no, I won't even talk about it. He says, we've got to get better actors than the best. You know? But anyway, but, yeah, he held out for it. He shut them up in, in a second. Uh, well, <clears throat> When I got in the picture, I got turned down about uh, going to Brazil. Uh, and Arthur says, I want to look like nothing on earth. I began to look through all kinds of architecture. It had to start somewhere. And, and I had a little book, it was only about that big, called Architecture Without Architects. And was all about the native, uh, uh, you know, every form of 
what the, it's amazing what what has been done in Africa and other prim, primitive societies that created architecture and <clears throat> without straight lines and uh, <clears throat> excuse me uh, I also researched you know broader books and I found the city of Cappadocia in Turkey and it was quite an inspiration you know to see that these things completely created like sculpture with with only the only way they could have done it is mentally how to do these and I had an artist that was assigned to the picture Meta Hubner and he's a little bit crazy and he, <clears throat> I said Here's, here's what I see. I said something based on this feeling of Cappadocia without, you don't have to copy it, but see what you can play with. So Metter went, he did there, there uh, well I brought some samples of his work, but then we used Mentor's work for research again and then picked out elements that that he had expanded on and then began to put on shapes. And then we, um, <clears throat> um, what was next? Uh, we had to, it got going, oh, I had a model bill at this scale, a quarter inch of the foot. And, and uh, <clears throat> the, the model builder at the studio had a wonderful department. So he took Matthew's sketches and Cappadocia and begin the sculpture of these buildings. And I just said, keep going, you know, just egg them on. And we finally put together a model that was pretty big. And we then <coughs> got approved and we, we picked a building to start with. I had no idea how to build it because it's, it's completely you know, it's not organized in any way, so we had to organize it. So we <clears throat> took, uh, uh, Connie Morris was the model maker, we took his model, his clay, and had a cast. And then we took the cast in and sliced it like bread. And then I had the guys in the drafting room get big sheets of quarter-inch uh, grid and they took those bread slices and traced around them. So we had sections of these buildings. Then one of the young carpenters came up with an idea. He built me a chair out of a thin rod about, we call it a pencil rod, and it's the cage in the, it was like the armature on the buildings, the, the cage that they were penned up in. So then we, we uh, uh, he, he took pencil rod and foam and sprayed it from the inside. It, well, he covered the, the armature with cardboard in the shape of kind of an abstract chair, if you can imagine like that. And then sprayed from the inside and then peeled the cardboard off, the colors of cardboard which we were, able, we were able to see the building start to take place because it was controlled by this armature. And uh, that, 
that's what we ended up doing. That whole thing was built. Well, the areas where uh, Essen had to run on and physically were, were uh, we then had to do, do some of that with cement, but it was very hard to keep it. You know, the carpenters think in shapes of a two by four. They, they were kind of blown away with this, this whole thing, but it finally got done. I was visited several times at the ranch group in, in Malibu, uh, at the studio. Uh, we had access, the Poinsettric Fox had a new deal. They got a helicopter so they could get places quick. So I was visited by um, <clears throat> Richard Zanuck and the head of production at that time. And when was I going to get done with this? There was always the urge. I would run out of money. You got it. I said, look at it. You, it, it. We're creating something that had never been done before. But the, <clears throat> like the makeup, you know? And, and uh, so it was really a like I say, a collaborative thing. I don't think anybody, everybody helped a little bit and from metric sketches to the, to the guys that had to build. They were quite efficient buildings in the heat of summer out there and the makeup. They actually, these foam buildings, they could cool them. So they, they air conditioned a few of them and used them for makeup rooms and well, relief rooms for the actors. That was probably close to an hour of questions and answers, and something funny happened then. There was a special guest under the uh, ruse of not knowing he was going to be able to participate, but it turned out he was. This guest was introduced. I didn't think that this uh, uh, special guest was going to be able to make it tonight, but we actually uh, did, in fact, get a late addition to our panel and uh, uh, I'm so glad that he can actually be here. Please, please welcome Dr. Zayas. Hello, everyone. Hello, everybody. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. How did you all get in my room? That's a Frank Sinatra joke. Come on. Boy, I tell you, I was sitting in the back. I was sitting in the back, and I thought, boy, you get one human that can talk, and then there's another and another and another, a whole nest of them. That's, that's one of my lines from the movie. Hello. What a, oh, okay. to see everyone. Thank you all for coming and thank you for enjoying the film. Let's have a round of applause for this. What a fantastic talent. What a, what a talented, what a wonderful Okay. You know, I live up in Ojai now myself. I, I was not going to come down, Alan. Because, to me, the Forbidden Zone is the 101 on a Friday. And I'm not, I'm not joking. I live up there. I live near Peter Strauss. He has a horse that gets in my yard. That's a whole other story I don't want to bother. It's lovely to see you all. And, and what, a, what an honor it is to be on this stage with this august group of people. And what an honor it is for them to be here with me. <laughs> 
think, I think uh, Dr. Zayas, you're probably the perfect person to tell us a little bit about working with Chuck Heston. Well, <laughs> I, I have a lovely story about Chuck, but this is neither the time nor the place. <laughs> hello, hello, Dick. <laughs> No, I don't teach. That's Dan Sripak, one of the best, one of the best makeup men in the business. And, and, you know, Chuck, Chuck, and you had to call him Chuck. You couldn't call him Charlton. He said, "Hello, Chuck. Chuck, call me Chuck." And I go, "No, I'm much more comfortable calling you Charlton." And he go, "Chuck, very seriously." And then you didn't call him Chuck. But he is the reason this film got made. Artie, Artie Jacobs who I met, God, you know, I'm an old hoofer. And I, I met Artie, I was doing scudder who, scudder hay in Oakland uh, with, a, with a very young Barbara Felden, who's a dynamo. She is the, de you, you get a Mai Tai in that woman and she is the devil in polyester pants. Sorry, I have a new hip. The doctor has a new hip. <laughs> but Chuck, Artie, so Artie knew, Artie knew he needed a star to get this film made. And there were, Paul Newman was originally attached to this uh, in the very early stages, I believe. And, uh, and then uh, Chuck, uh, Chuck came on board and we, uh, and he really championed the project back when uh, not a lot of A-list stars uh, were doing science fiction. And uh, or fantasy, however you want, you want to describe it, and uh, and he really championed the film, and uh, and then the uh, and uh, and got it, to, and, and and everybody told Artie no two or three, four times, and he would just keep going, he would just keep going back, and that's a good lesson that uh, when when someone says no, you keep going back if you're trying to get a movie made, not with a lady. <laughs> Just a quick aside about this. You know, the astronaut Stewart did not know about Operation New Eve. She thought she was the botanist. They were, the plan was they were going to crack the seal on Operation New Eve and then all faint surprise. Pray that uh, Dodge lost the toss. <laughs> too soon, too soon. <laughs> but Chuck, uh, Chuck did. He uh, he got he got the film made. We got Franklin Schaffner through Chuck. They were good friends. They made a film together, I believe, called uh, The Conqueror. If I might possibly, that's what I said. <laughs> That's what I said, and uh, and uh, and the and the and the studio itself took a, a big chance uh, on uh, on uh, Franklin Schaffner. This was really his big uh, first big uh, big time at the plate, as they say, and uh, he hit it out. He hit it out of the park to continue the baseball metaphor. Yeah, he, and Chuck, you know, this was the late '60s, and it was a very tumultuous time. And I don't know if, if you covered this, but. Half the makeup production, and you tell me if I'm wrong, <laughs> that production all around town slowed down 
because all the makeup artists were working on apes. It is true. And you have to remember this is 1967, so the ones that weren't on apes were probably hopped up on goofballs somewhere. <laughs> Okay. In cornfield sequence alone, I had 67 makeup artists working every day. Oh and can I ask you a question about the corn? Because I wasn't in that scene, and I wanted to be in that scene, and I had a good role for myself written in. Uh, how did they train the horses to not be go cuckoo bananas when they saw a guy in a gorilla mask? I really don't know. Because I... Well, because the horses scare, and uh, I would just think, okay, a gorilla's gonna ride you now, but you'll be fine. <laughs> I think I heard. I think I heard one say, "Holy shit!" <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit! Um, but I want to tell a very. I, I want to tell a quick, uh, quick story about uh, Chuck Heston. So it's nineteen. It's it's it was summer of nineteen sixty-seven. We shot the film. And uh, he was a conservative by that time. He was very strongly in support of uh, Richard Nixon, who uh, they thought was going to run for president. And I was a big fan of Eugene McCarthy. And we would go back and forth. And at the end of the day, I would say, like, oh, Chuck Heston, you so-and-so. I'll never speak to you again. And I'd go in my trailer. Ten minutes later, knock on the door. Charlton Heston, I made you an ambrosia salad. You couldn't hate the guy. <laughs> star because he's a wizard in the kitchen and he kept that a secret all his life. And what are the, uh, and you know, uh, and, and, and young Linda Harrison who uh, played Nova, so wonderful, and was uh, engaged at the time to the head of the studio, Dick Zanuck. What are the odds? <laughs> store, she stays busy. <laughs> oh. This was so funny to me. It was like going to a stand-up comedy show with Dr. Zayas, but commenting on things about the movie and the making of the movie as if he was really there. I just, I found it incredibly hilarious. You probably heard my own laughter during some of that. It was so bizarre and even through the end, and he was there for a good 20, 30 minutes more, Matt Reeves and the people on stage kept saying, who is this guy? I mean, who who was this that was dressed up like Dr. Zayas and delivering these one-liners that were so such in-jokes uh, about the making of the movie? It was really fantastic, and I, I wouldn't have thought I would have thought this was a highlight of the night, but it really was. I really enjoyed it. And we'd later find out that this was stand-up comedian Dana Gould, and he's a huge Apes fan. I've heard him on podcasts before, but I didn't know he did this little shtick, and it, and it was just great. I loved it. He moderated the questions from the audience, and I've got a couple here just for his interactions. I'd like to see a full HBO comedy special or something with him. I've, I, seen I think him on, I've seen him on some other things, actually. When you first mentioned that, I didn't know him, 
my name, but then I just happened to see him on some television show, and I was like, oh, yeah, that guy. I recognized the name, but now I was like, I connected it with the face, and so, yeah, I'd, I would have loved to have seen that, that little skit. I think that would have been entertaining. All right, let's have some real questions. I'm sure they're not for me, though. Hi, my name's Rob Sawyer. I actually flew in from Toronto just for this evening, and it was spectacular. Thank you. Thank you. Bill Kreber, I've always been a huge fan of your work on the Irwin Allen Productions and, of course, on this, everything. And I have a question. When they have the full-size spaceship at Lake Powell, and they blow the hatch which blows very nicely. This whole corrugated sheet blows off one side of the ship too. I've always wondered if that was supposed to happen or if that was an accident of the, the prop actually blowing apart because of too big a charge. Thank you. It was an accident. It was an accident. <laughs> a horrible accident. You know when you know when he says the air's okay, good thing. <laughs> Quick movie. <laughs> the air's not okay. Cast of characters. <laughs> Did you know that at the end of the film, the original line was he looked up and said, "Oh my God, they have a Statue of Liberty too." <laughs> for all your great work on these films. Uh, okay, so my question, Dr. Zayas, this is a perfect one for you to answer, although everyone else is allowed to give their opinion. What do you think is the primary value that ape society cherishes, and how does that differ from humanity? Well, I think what the film shows, clearly this one, is it's not good to have a powerful orange politician. <laughs> primate, possibly man, and my original line was fake news. <laughs> Too soon. Hiss. Somebody hiss. I said something. Hiss. Pizza. Thank you. <laughs> but that's what's great about the film is that it's about something. I'm serious. It's true. I'm not trying to be, I'm not even trying to be funny, and Reeves is over there chuckling away. Go ahead. Your boy, chuckle, chuckle, chuckle. <laughs> Hello. Hi. Um, Did I ever tell you about the time I lost a full next watch in Elky Summer's hot tub? No, we'd love to hear about it, though. It, it, it's a lovely story. It involves Jack Parr and amyl nitrate. <laughs> And so the last thing was a question from the audience, but dealing specifically with the differences in the movie from the book. So, of course, Planet of the Apes was a novel by Pierre Boulet or Pierre Boulle, um, a French novelist. Very different 
took place in more of a city that apes controlled versus you know, a city that might evolve from primitive ape. They answer a little bit about why it's different and how it's different. I'm Mickey. Um, thank you for being here. I had a, a question. I, I was absolutely blown away by the realism of the, uh, the new movies, the apes, and I'm absolutely blown away by the makeup from the original movies when I first saw them. The scene with the uh, gorillas coming in during the hunt, and they spin around in the horses, and then you get a big zoom in on their face, and it's just wow, the makeup just blew my mind when I was a kid. I was like, wow, that looks amazing. There's so um, many zooms in this movie when you watch it now. What? Why are you laughing? I want There's a lot of zooms. It's like a Santana video. I, and I, I'm a big fan of makeup because it's so ingenious and how you figure these things out. So I, I'm, I love makeup. But a uh, question for the original, uh, regarding the original movie, can you speak a little bit about why there was such a radical uh, change from the environment of the storyline from what the book was to what the movie eventually became? Because it, it was set in modern times, right, the book. So they looked basically like human. They, they were in a human environment that was modern, but they were all apes. So do, do you know why that, that was so radically changed? Um... I think it's Arthur Jacobs' statement that he didn't want the audience to believe they were on Earth until the last shot of the picture. So they they wanted sort of a fantasy design to the picture, and that's uh, why we picked the locations we picked because not many people had seen them. And certainly. Um, well, to, to me, that's the main reason, if, if I got the question correct. Yeah, it was, I was, just, uh, was wondering kind of what, what the, the thinking was behind it. Well, so. the, the first two drafts of the script that Rod Serling wrote were set, like the book, in a modern-day city. And it wasn't, I think, budgetary restrictions also. It involved Michael Wilson coming in, and they, they rethought it. Uh, but those, the Rod Serling draft is being adapted by, as a graphic novel for later this year by Boom Comics by really? someone, I don't know the writer, but I hear he's strikingly handsome. <laughs> uh, thank you, Dr. Zayas. I'm a big fan of yours. Thank you. Thank you. I'm just a podiatrist. <laughs> You know, you get the title, you use it. <laughs> Mostly for parking. That was it. Those are the highlights. I've included anything that really was referenced to the original Planet of the Apes. That fits in our classic horror wheelhouse. Not so much about the, the modern, but I don't know. That may turn up somewhere because not that they're not great movies. I love them, but I just didn't really think that we would include them here. There was one last uh, person, the, the last person in line to ask a question. There's an actor named Bobby Porter. He was in Con no Battle of the for the Planet, and he was also in a couple episodes of the TV series. He's done some other genre stuff. He got up and and kind of tooted his own horn a little bit, but it was interesting. He's uh, been acting, I guess, for all these years, and he started out. His first job was Battle of the Planet of the Apes, and he said he sat in Dan Streepeck's chair to have makeup applied. And so it was kind of cool that he was there on stage at this moment for 
Bobby Porter. Oh, was I guess he was also in the Poseidon Adventure, and Bill Kreber was a art director for Poseidon Adventure. So talked about how he had worked with him. That was a cool moment for Bobby Porter. So he was actually in the audience as a as a yeah, yes. and he w- and there's I apologize. There is a, a I think a standard Planet of the Apes podcast that's known as the Planet of the Apes podcast, and the guys from there were up front and they were like interviewing and talking to him, and people everyone knew who he was. I don't think I really did. But once they said, I knew, oh, yeah, that's who that is. Yeah, he was just there in the audience. You know, he's not an A-list star by any means and probably never was. But to Planet of the Apes fans, you know, he's like... Well, yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, we've lost several of of the, the main stars, several of the others. I just There's not much of a convention circuit, really, for specific ape stars. So... Because uh, I mean, we've long since lost uh, James Franciscus, uh, and I'm just thinking of some of the stars, Roddy McDowell, Charlton Heston, Maurice Evans. Uh, now, actually, Linda Harrison was supposed to be at this event, and for some reason she did not make it. There was also a uh, one of those huge celebrity autograph conventions going on that weekend, and she was a guest there. I wonder if there was a conflict. No, she canceled on that, too. Oh, did she? Yeah. Oh, actually, because you and I, I don't think I ever told you that. We had talked about, I wondered if she opted to do that over the other. She actually canceled out on that show, oh, too. Oh, huh. So there may have been a scheduling conflict, hopefully not poor health. To, I don't know how old she is, yeah. but... Well, this was not the only event they're having to celebrate. All through the year, they're having screenings of the other movies with other guests, and they did mention she would be a guest at a future screenings. I don't know if it was beneath or not, but uh, I hope she's in good health. You mentioned the original vision for Planet of the Apes, and there is a a comic miniseries. I think it's a miniseries. I don't think it's a a one-shot graphic novel, but coming out later this year from... Uh, what's the company that does those? Is it is Boom? It Boom, yeah. They are doing a comic adaptation of the original novel with the, the apes in a more civilized city, and uh, that's never been adapted, I don't believe. I know that uh, that's always kind of intrigued me, so I'm looking forward to, to seeing that. I think it starts maybe July or August time frame, hmm. capturing on that, that uh, anniversary bandwagon in the second half of the year. You'll be proud of me for this. Uh, that project reminds me of what they did with City on the Edge of Forever for yes. Star Trek. Did you read the I comic did. adaptation of the original script by Harlan Ellison? And there was another one that had done that as well. When I have read those, it has helped me understand maybe why they went a different route. Maybe I'm just more comfortable and used to the the project as they end up being. Well, they incorporated a little bit of it into the... Saturday morning series because the apes in that, of course, are are they they drive cars and they fly planes. Have you ever seen the that series? It's been a long yeah. time. I've got the the box set, but I haven't watched. Yeah, it's been a long time for me too. But I I mean they they're certainly are a little bit more civilized. Although I don't know that they're to the extent. I want to say that they, I mean they have radio. And I'm almost thinking that they have television in that, but it's been so long since I've seen that. Hmm. I don't know. I, I prefer what we see in the movies as opposed to a more civilized. Although, going back to the 2001 movie, I do like that movie. It's got problems. And most people who like that movie you know, or, or 
they're okay with it. They hate the final scene. I actually really like the final scene. I do too. I think that was a, a really good cliffhanger. And then, of course, you see all of the, the police show up. And, and so, yeah, they're definitely, that's a civilized ape community. Uh, I love that final scene. And, and, of course, we never got a second film. I would have loved to have seen a second film. Yeah. So speaking of endings, and let, maybe we can conclude with this. Iconic ending of Planet of the Apes. If I bet if you ask someone who's only seen it once, that's you know what they'll remember. How do you feel when you see it? again and again and again. Does that, because you know what's going to happen, does it still have an impact on you? Two things come to my mind. One, I always get pulled back to how the local ABC affiliate censored what Charlton Heston said. Because he he says, God damn, which you couldn't say on television back then. They would just like cover it up. There would be nothing. And so this big iconic scene, and then you're like, you know... You get these odd pauses and silences, and I always think of that whenever I see that scene. It was incredibly powerful when the first time I saw it, and I don't think that it's it's lessened over the years. I still, it is an iconic scene. I love it. It's chilling. Now, I do tend to, my scientific brain kicks in a little bit, and I try to think of geography. and. Yeah. Like, okay, so the Statue of Liberty is here, but now we have this big canyon and valleys and stuff, which to me screams like Arizona or California. Uh, I try not to think about it too much because but I think logistically there are some problems there. But that that's, you know, I go back, I prefer to go back to my childhood wonder at it all. And I, I don't want to think too much because honestly... Uh, yeah, I don't have a problem with talking apes, but I have a problem with where the Statue of Liberty's at. Yeah, I've got to set aside that scientific brain. Yeah, I don't have much problem with that. I mean, it's buried up to its shoulders in sand. I mean, the geography has changed, and and beneath the subway system is in close proximity. So I've always been able to sort of buy that. But, you know, I don't know if there was ever a time that I didn't know the ending. I mean, I know for certain... I knew the ending, sort of like Psycho. You hear it long before you see the movie. I remember my dad, the first time watching it, my dad telling me, he says, you're going to love the ending of it. Yeah. You know? So I don't know if I have really ever experienced the shock, but knowing that it's coming, is that's a shock in itself, just a twist and a shock. But I think knowing allows you to really sort of take in and study what happens before that the other the deeper themes with them finding the doll in the cave and what's going on it lets you kind of focus on that you know rather than the ending but it's still i mean it doesn't it it can't possibly hold the same ability to surprise you i mean you know what's going to happen no that doesn't mean it's not a incredible ending one of the best in movies ever I, i think i think that it holds up better than say the sixth sense which, once you know that, I don't know. I mean, it, that surprise is forever gone. And that, that scene isn't as impactful. And in fact, while I still love the movie, I don't know, you tend to find yourself looking for the little clues. Right. Whereas there really isn't a lot of clues. There is, but there isn't in Planet of the Apes. For me, I think the scene holds up. Yeah. As opposed to other films and it's not that as... have a big, on a lot of M. Night Shyamalan's films... 
obviously after a first time viewing, some of that impact is is lessened. But I think I'm going back to uh, Split that came out now a little more than a year ago. That first time you, you see that, and you see you know the character pop up, and you're like, oh my gosh. I don't know, it changed the whole film at that point because now it's not just a random film. It's part of a bigger universe. And to me, I think that kind of holds up a little bit and I kind of compare it to even though you know it's coming, it's still a really cool scene. Yeah, and I think the difference is it's it's a key point, but it's not integral to the story being told. It's more like a background. So you can know what's going to happen at the end and that doesn't affect really the action or what happens. Sixth Sense has everything to do with every minute of that movie. Yeah. So if you rewatch that, of course you're thinking about it all along the way. Like, oh yeah, I see that now. You don't have, in Split or Planet of the Apes, you don't really have to think about that. It doesn't affect the, the story. So that was it. It was a great trip. I'm glad my brother came. I'm sorry that, that you couldn't join me. I know you would have loved it. I was happy to go. We'll talk about... Batman and also the Curse of the Werewolf thing. That was a third thing that popped up after I'd already made plans. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Um, yeah, it's great. I love Planet of the Apes. It was an awesome experience to be there and to be part of that. That will do it for the bulk of our episode. Since this is our normal club meeting time, we are going to take a quick break, come back, and we'll run through new releases, birthdays, anniversaries, and talk about what's going on with our blogs, and various projects. So we'll be right back. Discover Planet of the Apes. civilization where humans run wild in the jungles and the superior beings are apes
We are back. This is our new business part of the episode where we talk about new releases to home video, birthdays we're celebrating in the month, and anniversaries, things like that. And then we'll wrap up just talking about what's going on with each of us. Last year, if you, or last year, last episode, last meeting, if you remember, there wasn't a lot coming out on home video. This month is a little bit better. Guess some of these movies I don't know, but at least uh, there are more to mention than there were last month. On April 3rd, which is possibly today, you can get your hands on The Sadist of Notre Dame and Sinfonia Erotica. Those are two Jess Franco movies. There's got to be some Jess Franco fans out there, so you're probably jumping up and down today. But the only one I'm familiar with is his Dracula yeah. version with, with Christopher Lee, but I'm familiar with who he is, but he's got a whole yeah plethora of films. That's a whole nother subgenre that I haven't even attempted at. A Study in Terror also comes out uh, from Mill Creek on Blu-ray. Uh, I don't know if it's been out before. It's 1965. I've never seen it. Have you? A uh, long time ago. I've got it, and uh, I did not know they were putting that out, actually. That's a that's an upgrade for me, because what I have is an off-air, which I remember is not a good off-air recording. That was on a VHS dubbed to a DVD, so... It's, and isn't that Sherlock Holmes meets Jack the Ripper? Yeah. yeah oh, I think that sounds cool. That's actually, I remember, it's a good movie. Yeah, I enjoyed it. April 10th, next week, Deep Red, the 1975 Argento movie from Arrow Video. Crucible of Horror from 1971 is coming out from Scream Factory. Super Beast, 1972. I think that's a Abominable Snowman or Yeti yeah. movie. Uh, haven't heard much good about that, but that's from Shout and Scream Factory. The one I is probably top of my list for this month is The Psychopath. It's an amicus film. Freddie Francis directed it uh, from 1966. Uh, Derek talked about that recently on Monster Kid Radio. So it's coming out from Kino Classics, and I really want to get my hands on that. And finally, a movie known by several names, Enigma Rosso, The Virgin Killer, or Red Rings of Fear from 1978. That's coming out from Scorpion releasing. April 24th, we have from Shout Factory Daughters of Satan from 1972. We have from Vinegar Syndrome Terror from 1978. Kino Classics, The Maze in 3D. That's a that's a very underwhelming film you is it that? well see i had heard a lot about that i bought a copy at monster bash and of course now it's coming out from kino on blu-ray i is it a time travel thing or oh, i was thinking it turned up in a list of time travel movies you have to see and that's why it was on my list maybe i not. don't recall it being time okay. travel i remember it being a the ending of the film is not what you think it is oh. kind of films i it was on netflix many years ago uh, along with some other films like The Neanderthal Man and Vampire Flick from the mid-40s. I remember watching them all because they were like, oh, they're leaving Netflix after this month. And so I did like a marathon and, oof, boy, they were this, uh, underwhelming. This oh, well, that's that disappointing. Way. Of course, it's been a year and I haven't watched The Maze uh, that I bought last year. Maybe I should to see if it's worth getting a real official release but for some reason i had high expectations for it so i don't have it in my collection if that tells you anything i think that's so. it was on my list of movies i couldn't find and so when i saw it i'm sure i asked you first before i bought it 
And then War of the Planets from 1977 is coming out. And if this tells you anything about the movie, the studio releasing it is called Cheesy Flicks. Um, Cheesy Flicks is notorious for bootlegs. Oh. Cheesy Flicks, I, I think I have one or two of their releases. Yeah. Yeah, they're they're bottom of the barrel. So no. they there's no remastering in their prints. So buyer beware on that one. Mm-hmm. Birthdays for the month of April. We started out the very first of the month. Lon Chaney was born in 1883 on April 1st. April 5th, 1926, Roger Corman. Oh, and I did want to let everybody know that you can appear in the next issue of Scary Monsters magazines. They are soliciting people to write 300 words or less about Roger Corman. Uh, They're going to have a Roger Corman issue to celebrate and uh, you can just email letters at scarymonstersmagazine.com by May 1st, 2018, no longer than 300 words. So I'm going to try to come up with something and write. That'd be cool to have a letter in Scary Monsters. April 16th, 1909, Roy Ashton, the hammer makeup artist. April 24th, 1914, William Castle. And then, of course, well, not of course, I'm... We're recording out of order here, but April 22nd, 1894, Rondo Hatton was born. And our next episode will be all about that. We'll talk about that in a minute. Anniversaries, as you know, if you've made it this far, Planet of the Apes came out April 3rd, 1968. It had premiered, I believe, in Los Angeles and New York before that, but the wide release date was April 3rd, and that's what I believe we're celebrating. King Kong came out. April, April 7th, 1933, and House of Wax, April 25th, 1953. So April's a pretty good month for classic horror. Yeah, I will say the maze, the the one thing that is worth seeing that movie is the fact that it stars Richard Carlson. Hmm. Just looking at it, glancing at it, it's a film that has mixed reviews. Um, And it has to do with an amphibious creature and... It's like a frog-like monster, and I remember. Hmm. Yeah, it, we're not talking creature quality here, so I don't know. Maybe worth a reviewing. Maybe after seeing it, because it was the best of the of those films. I mean, because Neanderthal Man is not that great, and the other one, it, it guys, it was a vampire flick that just came. Hmm. Yeah. So, so if it it says the maze in 3D, now you got Mad Magician in 3D. My question is, do you have to have a 3D Blu-ray player? Or does it come with glasses? <laughs> um, you don't have to have it because that was remember that was a question right. about Mad Magician, and no, you can watch it in two D. Uh, it gives you the option. oh, so you can't watch it in three D unless you have a three D. You have to have a three D oh, player. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't come with the glasses. No, this is actual modern day three D. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, that's cool that they would do a, a classic movie with the modern technology. Only one thing to mention in the TV Terror Guide, um, TCM, Turner Classic Movies, is doing another marathon. Uh, This one on April 16th. It's a Monday. Starts 7.45 in the morning and runs all day. You'd think starting out it's a Karloff day. You've got Dead Men Walk, The Walking Dead, The Body Snatcher, Isle of the Dead. But about halfway through it shifts gears. We go to The Mummy, not Karloff's Mummy, but Hammer's 1959 Mummy. Then Macabre. I believe William Castle, 1958, yes. Death Curse of Tartu, 1966, 
and wrapping up with Dracula 80 1972 from would you like to guess which year what was the <laughs> Dracula 80 1972 uh, okay that'd be 1972 yes yeah, very I was like, good I was like, Wait a second, there's a trick question here. no 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 it's not okay. a trick. all right so, like, so that'll be a great day to uh, to stay home. Well, Death Curse of Card Two, I I have Sling now with the DVR, so I'm going to have to. Uh, I added TCM to that lineup. Oh, and I learned, as I told you, that TCM is part of the Hulu uh, more live TV version of Hulu, and they have a lot of their movies on demand. So that when we were recording last month, I wasn't aware of that fact, and I always lament the fact in fact that's why i ask you you know do you have death curse of tartu because i thought i won't be able to see that on turner classics but now i will so i don't have to ask you which is good because you don't have it and i'm going to be setting my dvr i have to get back into the habit of seeing what turner classic has coming up in a given month and kind of making a list so i can start dvring some of these because since they don't do the monthly magazine anymore uh, I went strictly online, which being old school, I kind of weeped when they did that. I was like, oh, come on. I, I like that magazine coming in the mail, but that's a movie I've been aware of, never seen. you got to love every, you know, TCM will, will uncover some of those films every once in a while. So That's uh, all I got for new business. Let's uh, wrap up. Tell us what's going on in your creative monster kid life. Uh, you know, it's just the past month, I've uh, a lot of the uh, little podcast segments I've recorded for Dread Media have been going live. As we speak, there is still another segment uh, that I recorded. I don't know if it's going live next week or not. It may be live by the time we speak, but uh, Piranha, the last of the films that I reviewed, is finally going up. And then uh, I'm going to be covering some more contemporary films on there. Um, oh, and about this time, you're getting ready to do the Mimiverse podcast, and tomorrow's April 1st. Do you Have you done it yet, or do, I, you, do you know what you're going to do? I skipped the April oh, okay. episode, because when uh, the deadline was due, I was uh, suffering from a flu bug, so uh, my, my voice was not up to par, so I had to regretfully skip the April episode. I do know what I'm doing in May. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, is it too is early it, to tease? I will give you the teaser. <laughs> uh, Cinema Go Go is a, an event that we go to, and in April, they are doing a couple of not-so-classic sci-fi films, Killers from Space, 1954, I believe, with Peter Graves, and The Phantom Planet from 60 or 61. And so I'm going to do kind of a compare-contrast, a little bit I'm going to talk about some of the early Mimiverse films, the sci-fi films. It came from another world, Cavewoman from Mars uh, specifically, maybe Destination Outer Space. Those films I have not seen. It'll give me a chance to see them and uh, kind of compare them to the Cinema Gogo films, which those movies were some of the films that were inspiration for Chris doing the Mimiverse. So uh, that's going to be my Ooh, That'll my be a segment. good one. Yeah, that's my segment for May. I'll miss you in April, though. I think Derek missed uh, Marches with his, um, what's he doing with the Sword and Sandal movies? Oh, no, the, the Spaghetti Westerns. Um, I can't think what his segment's called, but he, he didn't participate. So when one of you guys is gone, it, it lessens the podcast. I enjoy doing it. It's, it's a fun little, you know, I can do whatever I want segment. Sometimes that's actually hard because I have to like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? It just so happened that when he, when he I had an idea... But it was like, wow, there's just no way I'm going to be able to record it. So beyond that, uh, the blog, you know, caseycinephile.com and monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. Nothing big. 
although I'm, I'm thinking ahead to summer. Don't have any huge plans this summer. So last year I did a bunch of, uh, I did, I think, what did I, what did I call it last year? Did I do my summer of sci-fi or was that the yeah. year? Was that the year before? Uh, anyway, know. I remember watching some sci-fi films last year. I know, uh, I watched like gold and, and some of those, uh, random films I've been wanting to see and I might do something the same. And, you know, as summer rolls around, which we're now only less than two months away. So, I'll probably, you know, start gearing up for that a little bit. And, and actually, non-blog or podcast related, I am attempting to revisit the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe before Avengers Affinity War. I am done with Phase 1. I'm getting ready for Phase 2. As we speak, Iron Man 3 is the next movie up. I've you got skip that less one. than a month. I don't know that I'm going to make it, but by gosh, I'm going to try. And uh, it's fun because I'm actually rewatching most of these with my fiance. She's not an Iron Man fan either, so she skips those movies. But she uh, she hasn't seen Guardians of the Galaxy, and uh, which being a big sci-fi fan, I'm surprised at. So it's kind of fun rewatching some of these with her and uh, showing some of these for the first time. That's what I got going on right now. Okay. And me at Classic Horrors, I just finished up a run like you did of, of Rondo Award nominees uh, talking about those. And I'm, I'm just writing for um, We Belong Dead for some future publications there. I did the longest thing I've ever written, um, a feature on the history of, of silent horror films, which I, I volunteered for because I wanted to learn more about them. You probably could do it without even thinking about it. You know, like almost 20,000 words on it. It was just, it took a lot out of me. It took a long time. Uh, and then I just have a few that I need to pick up on that I said I would review for them. So that's what I'll be doing. Always trying to think of new fun things for the blog. So watch that. And you've been having your handfuls trying to keep up with this Fenguli schedule. Yeah, uh, yeah that's, and schedule. failing. I, yeah, I don't know Which what's I will going say, on. Next week, as we record this, so it would be the first weekend full weekend of april april 7th dinosaurus is going to be a new episode and that is a movie i've never seen so uh, i plan on that saturday night at seven o'clock being in front of my tv and watching dinosaurus on sven Gulli. i'm looking forward to that that'll be fun so i think is that, that about wraps it up I yeah I, I think so why don't we mention this was a bonus episode, although it may end up running almost as long as a regular episode. But what are we doing for our next slash half month episode, our next well, meeting? Well, officially episode 17 will be about Rondo Hatton in kind of honor of the upcoming or currently pending Rondo Awards. He was born April 22nd, so kind of tying into his birth as well. We're going to be taking a look at three of his films, The Spider-Woman Strikes Back, House of Horrors, and The Brute Man. Incidentally, the last three films of his career before he passed in 1946. So we'll be covering those films and talking about the Rondo Awards, which again, kind of tricky because as you and I are sitting here, the deadline hasn't passed. We And by the way, if you haven't voted, you have till April 8th. So this episode will be going out ahead of time. And so you've got till April 8th, and we don't know when the awards will be announced. Could be in conjunction with our next episode. Might be something we talked about in May. We're not quite sure yet. So uh, probably, well, we know we won't be talking about it until May at the earliest. 
So that's, uh, but Rondo Hatton is the subject of our next episode coming out in roughly two weeks. That's right. Richard, it was a pleasure as it always is. Thank you everybody for listening. One more time, our phone number, if you'd like to call and leave us a voicemail or for some feedback is 616-649-2582. That's 616-649-CLUB. I think someone doesn't pay attention when Jeff is talking over here. I was facing. I, God, that's bad. It's like you were. Just, I wasn't expecting you yes, to pass yes, it on yes. to me. I, was like, I, I know it's something new. I'm, I put you on the spot. Sorry about that. So that, and you can always. We would invite you to join our Facebook page, The Classic Horrors Club Podcast, where we talk about the things that we talk about on the podcast and we encourage you guys to post things you're starting to do that now that's great i love building that little mini community it's fun fun to do that so thanks everybody thanks richard bye take care